0: Okay, well, let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you for your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and for the astonishing and urgent message that he comes to bring, even though it is indeed, in a sense, a timeless message and fit for all ages. Nonetheless, we pray that we would receive it as such tonight as we study his word as an urgent call into our lives to prepare ourselves for his coming and for his advent, prepare ourselves for the end of our lives, and thus to live lives of wisdom, knowing that we are indeed mortal. And so teach us, Heavenly Father, to number our days that we may gain this heart of wisdom through the words of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we left off last week in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, and we had looked at the parable of the rich fool, which starts right around verse 13. And just to hit the high points, of course, we see here in this parable a man who's completely self-absorbed. And his biggest problem is, I've got so much wealth, I don't know what to do with it. And he does the worst possible thing. Instead of using that wealth in acts of mercy toward others, he says, I'm simply going to use my wealth to build bigger barns so that I can hold even more wealth. And you can see the pointlessness of all of this. And indeed, God's voice breaks into the parable and says, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you, which again is remarkable language because nothing is ours, not even ourselves, not even our very soul. It belongs to another. It belongs to the one who made it, to God. Of course, naturally then, we can be held accountable. But what then would Jesus have of his disciples? And I think you can see Um, This at verse 20 and following, where, again, the Lord says, you fool this night, your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Then you have verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Okay, so we hit that. And you can see that this is a subsection of Jesus' larger teaching program here. We went then in very quickly to his sermon, not to be anxious about what we eat or what we drink or what we will put on. And you remember, he has us consider the ravens and the lilies, talking about how he feeds them, even though they don't sow or reap or have barns, and how he clothes them, even though they don't toil or spin. And at verse 31, we kind of come to the punchline of this particular section of his sermon. Instead, seek his kingdom, so your father's kingdom, and these things, that is the bodily necessities, will be added unto you. And I think that's roughly where we stopped. Let's just go into the next section. The next parables proper begin at verse 35. So 32 is a continuation, a good place to ignore the paragraph break that the editors in your Bible have probably put in. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we return to this idea of God being the one who gives. He's the one who makes the field of the fool produce plentifully. He's the one that clothes and feeds and covers earthly needs. And as the climax of all of this, it is his good pleasure to give you the very kingdom, the reign of Christ and the cosmic reign that will be, belong to the saints of Christ as well. It's a deep Deep set of uh, teachings there that we won't go into. We'll just simply bypass at this point. 33 has a certain kind of symmetry to it with what has preceded sell your possessions and give to the needy. So the idea being that God has given you all that you have. And as you are a son of the father, like father, like son, so then you take and you bestow unto others. I don't love the translation, give to the needy, even though it's not wrong. It's just elie mo sunain, and elie is the mercy word. So this is where we get like acts of mercy or alms, sometimes charity, but sell your possessions and give, um, or rather maybe altogether, uh, do give uh, mercy and works of mercy unto others I'm, I may be quibbling a little but just the idea of giving only to the needy kind of conjures in the modern mind that we were to give to the guy standing on the street corner probably inevitably scamming us and not to any others and that you know the text just doesn't direct us in that way as you have opportunity to show mercy show mercy that's the nature of your father who is in heaven it's the nature of His care for you, even unto giving and bestowing upon you the kingdom. Go oh, and do likewise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you <laughs> all, you always see that, don't you? Uh, um, we saw it in the in the parable of the good Samaritan that there's a double gospel here. The first gospel is, look what God has done to you, and I I mean the first, not temporally, but in a logical sense, in a theological sense. So always look what the good that God has done to you. That's the first gospel, as it were, first fold of the twofold gospel. And the second is that he gives you to be like him. And that is such an astounding honor and that we don't even think of it. And sometimes we just, oh, well, that's sanctification that, you know, that's a lesser thing or something like that. But it's really part of the twofold gospel gospel that he gives. He shows his mercy to us, and then he enables us to be like unto himself. Incredible twofold gospel we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we see here also. So thanks for pointing that out, Gordon. David, are we doing okay? Can you give me a thumbs up? Is anybody (laughs) frantically waving hands? (laughs) Good. All right, thanks. Sounds like the mic's working. Appreciate it. Okay, so give to the needy. Now, the second half of verse 33 of Luke chapter 12. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that sort of make for yourselves purses that are ageless. That would be the Rhody dynamic translation. Provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old. Um, make for yourselves persons that are ageless. I think that's, to me, that's more the idea because it more captures the idea of this heavenly wealth is already yours. If only you can contain it. And if you can contain it, then you can distribute it. If you can have it unto yourself, you can distribute it unto others. That's the idea of make for yourselves or provide yourselves with. Money bags or purses, whatever, you get the point. And then not growing old is true, but what does that really mean? Ageless, timeless. Um, Yeah, that's the sense of it. And then he continues with a treasure in the heavens. And that's going to be very important to not gloss over that the treasure is in the heavens. It's a heavenly treasure that you have with you. It's a reign of God. It's a heavenly rain coming down upon earth. It's heavenly treasure coming into your money bag, your money sack. And that treasure store, as it were, that even now you're possessing here in part and distributing here in part, that treasure store is truthfully in the heavens and is inexhaustible. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, um, yeah, again, it's it's good, it's fine translation, but it's like it's more like unfailing treasure in the heavens, or uh, infinite treasure in the heavens, um, undiminishing treasure in the heavens, and you know that's the beauty of the gospels. The more you give, it's it doesn't diminish, it doesn't decrease. That's why jealousies and rivalries over the gospel and, and within the kingdom of God are de facto foolish because. The gospel and the treasures of heaven aren't of such a quantity that they diminish when you distribute them. You can distribute and distribute and distribute, and there's always the same amount in reserve. You can think of this, by the way, just by analogy of love. You know, when you pour out love for your wife or love for your children, your love doesn't diminish. It's not like, okay, well, that's all the love I got today. You got to let some more build back up. Uh, you know, it's just that you just love and the more you love and the more you pour out your love, that love doesn't diminish. So that would be kind of a, an earthly analogy for that. So it's up in the heavens where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You know, and that shows the weakness of earthly wealth, too, because as soon as you have it, you got to buy a safe for it. You got to buy locks for your doors, you gotta buy an alarm system, you gotta buy a guard dog, you gotta buy some weapons, (laughs) you gotta buy safe clothes. (laughs) So it's a pretty wimpy treasure. It's kind of treasure that needs to constantly spend itself to keep itself. You know, or as my or as my father told me about the time I brought home my first paycheck and saw the taxes come out of it. He said, yeah, you gotta work to earn your money and then you got to keep you got to work again to keep the government's hands off your money. <laughs> so you can see the weakness. I mean, the same thing with moths and they had the same problem then, of course. And you try to do things to prevent the moths. OK, now I got a bunch of nice clothes. What am I going to do? You know, got to put cedar in the closet. Maybe the whole closet's got to be cedar. So on, so forth. Storage bags for the winter. Just a big hassle. Kingdom of heaven, the riches of heaven aren't like this. God be praised. So keep it up in heaven. Know that that's your real treasure, even here on earth, that you've been given to distribute. And then this beautiful gospel promise that sometimes rings like law in our ears. I don't, I mean, it can be that way, I suppose, but I don't think that's the primary intention the Lord has. In verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, if your treasure is in heaven, if this heavenly riches are right at the center of your heart, then your heart is right in the center of heaven. Um, you know, the earthly riches, that's always the pull of the flesh, and the desire for earthly riches, always the pull of the flesh, so it's always with us. But that's the thing we want to recognize and push out, drown, crucify, um, ever more completely realize our treasure in heaven. OK, so now there is a, a break here and, and a new I, I mean, I do think that this is a transition, uh, but maybe not even here requiring a uh, paragraph break or new subheading. Because it does launch from this idea of treasure into an idea of uh, stewardship and being servants of one who is wealthy. So I think that's the transition, even though, as you're going to see, the nature of this does take on a different flavor. Let me pause there because we're going to get right into this. This will be the next parable proper that we're looking at. So we'll slow down a bit here. Are there any questions or concerns or additional comments? All right, seeing and hearing none, on to 35. Stay dressed for action. Uh, Literally, let your waist be girded. You can kind of tell by the language there that that's a translation, but let your waist be girded. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. It's worth noting, worth noting throughout that this is plural language. We get so individualistic plural language verse 36 and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks blessed are those slaves whom the master finds awake uh, Gregoruntas which is like awake for the watch the night watches if you were a guard out on the tower on the city walls you'd watch for a period so that's the sense in which uh, one is awake here watching so blessed are those slaves whom the master finds awake or watching when he comes okay now the Truly, here, here is particularly weak. I'm a stickler for the Amen, especially because what follows the Amen is quite often something that is astonishing and at least at first glance difficult to believe. And I would struggle to find a time at which it is more true than here. This is maybe among the most astonishing things that our Lord ever says. And the only warning is this, Amen. Amen, I say to you, he, that is the master, will dress himself. Now the language is, will gird up his garments unto his waist for service, diaconese, ministry service, and have them, who is the them, his own slaves who are awake at his coming, who are watching at his coming, he will have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. This is utterly astonishing because no, no master would do this. I mean, heretofore in the parable, everything's going exactly right. Of course, he'd expect his slaves, his employees, his housekeepers to be up and waiting for him. So when he hits the door, the lamps are on and he he knocks, he, they, they'll open unto him, they'll take his jacket off, help him on his way to bed, get the house clo- closed down, you know, water the camel or whatever you need to do and uh, get it back in the garage. And that's their job. Go to bed. But here, he comes home from the wedding feast and is so overjoyed and filled with joy. And so uh, just unnaturally, I mean, that's, I don't know how else to put it. Um, strangely, wonderfully, uh, joyous, joyful and joyous that he himself girds up uh, his waist and serves them. Now, in terms of Jesus, you can think of uh That night on which he's betrayed, Maundy Thursday, when he does something very similar himself and girds up his clothing and after stripping off his upper layer and washes the disciples' feet. So something very, very concrete and similar there. But here it's not so much the washing of of the feet, although, you know, that's clearly connected. He washed their feet so that they could recline at table and eat. Um, here it's specifically, though, to the reclining at table and him serving them. Now, we have a, I think we have a foretaste of this. And as Lutherans, we're especially blessed to have an understanding and a grasp of how this is a reality that is now but not yet. And the now of this is precisely the divine service, where every Sunday, as our Lord promises, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in your midst. So we know that Jesus himself comes present in a peculiar and special way unto us on Sundays. And we recall his words, too, that he comes not to be served, but to serve. And so the one doing the serving is the divine one, the divine service, the Gottesdienst. That's the German from the previous generation, that God serves us with his word and sacraments. Now, of course, the second part of that is we respond with thanksgiving and praise, all the rest. So worship has these two parts. It does have an active part for us, but it's a responsive part to what he is doing present tense. So the old distinction for this, which is kind of helpful to keep in mind, is uh, beneficium, Sacrificium. And so the beneficium is describing those things in the divine liturgy that the Lord does unto us. And one of the tips of the beneficium or one of the tells is if the pastor's facing you, chances are that's beneficium. Not always, but about 99% of the time, uh, he is giving something from the treasury of God unto you. And the divine one is serving you through his minister. When the pastor turns and has his back toward you and is uh, likewise oriented with you toward God, that's sacrificium. That's the response to what God has done, where we give him thanks and praise. We may, uh, our response may be one of repentance. It may be one of uh, exaltation and jubilation, Um, may be one of prayer. It may be one of song. But that's the second aspect of the divine service. So that's the now element of this parable of Jesus. The not yet is not yet. But it's, it's almost too wonderful and too humbling to imagine. Um, you know, you feel very much like Peter. Lord, you will never wash my feet. <laughs> Lord, are you kidding me? At the end of the age, you're going to gird up your loins And serve us, your your lowly disciples. You know, I can totally sympathize. My heart is just completely one with Peter's. Lord, may this never be the case, especially at the end. If anyone should be served, it should finally be you. Um, But you remember what our Lord says: that the greatest of all is indeed the servant of all, and that's Him. If we will not allow Him to serve us, then we can have no part with Him. So. Beautiful, beautiful words here and a wonderful promise of what's to come. So just once more at 38, right in the middle, amen, I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service or ministry and have his slaves recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch, which – Well, let's cover that in a minute. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, same idea, watchful. Blessed are those slaves. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All right, so you see a major transition at 39. After 38, he says, if he comes in the second watch or in the third, if you have a Lutheran study Bible, your note will tell you that the first watch is 6 to 10 p.m., second is 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and the third is 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So even if he comes very late or very early, depending upon how you're thinking about it. And he finds his slaves awake and watchful, blessed are they. And then 39 is the pivot, but know this, if the oikodespotes, the master of the house, and here we see a major pivot into a different theme. I mean, if I were an editor and I were into putting paragraphs into things, this is probably actually where I would put one because what follows throughout the remainder of the section follows this pivot. Because the oikodespotes has changed, you know, in the, it's not, well, it's a new word and a new subject. And I think it's obviously a mistake to think that the master in verses 35 through 38 is the same as the, oikodespotes, the master of the house in 39, I think that that's the shift. So I think in verses 35 to 37, we, or as we'll see in a minute, maybe pastors in particular, but let's just leave it as we ought to um, consider ourselves to be the slaves, the servants. And then in 39, and what follows, there's an There's the sense in which we need to consider ourselves, or at least pastors in particular, again, you'll see why in just a minute, ought to count themselves as the oikodespotes, the master of the house. Let's just run through this, and I think you'll see what I mean. I know that's probably a little puzzling as I've laid it out, but you'll see what I mean as we go along. So assuming at 39, but know this, that if the master of the house, now we, the readers, are to put ourselves in the shoes of the master of the house, had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So that's, and it's probably even dug into, because that's how thieves would often break in. It's not like they had a bunch of doors and windows back then. So you dig into the side of the house and slip in. Uh, but anyway, yeah, if, I mean, this is obvious enough, right? Like if the, if the thief is kind enough to send you a note letting you know what time he's going to be there, which wall he's going to be digging through, uh, you're going to be standing there ready to go. You might even go outside and stop him, but that's not how thieves work. And that's not how the return of the Lord works either. So it c- requires constant vigilance constant watchfulness. Okay, and that's verse 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, strange comparison, but not all that strange for Jesus, that as the thief comes at an unexpected time, so the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, is coming at an unexpected time as you have to constantly be vigilant for a thief which is of course on guard over something bad you have to be constantly vigilant for the coming of the son of man which is on guard for something very good okay so you can see the way that jesus is playing with these themes here now if you look at verse 41 this will clarify for you kind of the back and forth i was going about you know is this generally to christians or to pastors in specific because that's the very question that peter asks. In verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, well, he doesn't answer. (laughs) Typical Jesus fashion. He doesn't say, well, for you or for all. I guess he says, yes, Um, So there is a general sense in which this is true for all Christians, but I think by the end of it, you'll be more than happy to see its specificity falling upon those who bear the office of pastor. And indeed, I think that that's the main thrust of it. I just think it's both and with the emphasis being on pastors. Okay. So let's, let's go along and see then verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager. Now the English is just keep saying manager for everyone, for everything. This is oikonomos. So there is a subtle change in language, but oikonomos is still like the the law of the house, the head of the household. And that is, I think maybe just a tangential glimpse into what it means to be the head of the household is you're the law of the house. Who then is the faithful and the pistos faithful and the phronomos, the wise uh, manager, steward, whom his master, Kyrios, whom his lord will set over his? And you would expect this to be something with oiko, with house, but it's not. It's therapias, which can be used for household, but it really means it's hard to translate. It really means something like over set over the care of like therapy. you can think of healing. Um, it would be I think a little too strong to think of hospital language here. That would be a little anachronistic, but the idea is that the manager isn't merely over uh, like I don't know he, his management involves the care of others. That would be specifically the care of the servants that belong to the master. That would be the best way to put it. Okay, so you have this manager who is under the master, who has been set by the master in a position where he is to care for the master's servants. That's the view, which sounds kind of like the pastoral office. But I think you'll see, too, why it's, it's a little bit of a both-and here, because it's good for the goose, good for the gander. And what is he to do? He's to give them their portion of food at the proper time. So there's a feeding involved here. And, of course, maybe in the background you can hear uh, Jesus to St. Peter, where he says, feed my sheep. So this is the idea, to apportion food to them at the proper time. Verse 43 Blessed is that slave whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So, a reminder that even though this one has been put into position of an oikonomos, of a manager, he is nonetheless retains his essential status as a slave of the curios, of the master. So a slave set above other slaves to care for them, to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Amen, I say to you, he will set him, I mean, look at the shock here. Amen, I I would say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. There's similar verses that speak of this, of course. Um, This is part of the reign with Christ, is that all he has becomes the possession of his church, for we are his body and he is our head. Actually, that's not amen there. I'm sorry. That is actually truly a lethos. Truly, I say to you, it's not amen. A lethos. Truly, I say to you. Okay, and then now 45... We get, it, we get into a series of what-ifs here. And I don't, I mean, this might present itself as difficult. I think it's straightforward, and that, <laughs> that might be why it's difficult. <laughs> All right. So 45, but if that slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, And begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. So the idea here is gluttonous eating, drinking to get drunk. Instead of distributing the food, he's just enjoying it all unto himself. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know. And now this sounds I mean this sounds almost like a particular visitation doesn't it this sounds less like the uh universal judgment and more like the way that God visits that rich fool and says to him you know you fool this very night your soul is required of you that's what this sounds like to me a particular visitation the hour of death for this servant if he should turn faithless and do these things, this is what will become. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour. He does not know. And will um, the ESV renders this cut him in pieces, which is okay, but it's really cut him in two dichotomy say, which the dichotomy you can hear the cut in two and why cut in two is worth retaining. I mean, well, it is of course severe no matter what, The cut in two is like what happens when you break a covenant. Um, So frequently covenants would happen. You cut an animal in two. You can see this at various places in the Bible. And the idea is if you're in breach of the covenant, what has just happened to this animal should happen to you. So again, I, I think this is probably leaning highly toward the pastoral office and the kind of I mean, again, everything that hits the pastoral office redounds upon the whole church, just in a lesser degree. But this um, this punishment seems specific and seems as though he what happens to the sacrificial animals happens to him because he is in violation of an intimate covenant with the Lord. Not only is he cut in two, But then he is put with the unfaithful. So, I mean, it's kind of odd language and hard to reconcile. Cut in two, you're deceased, but apparently not, because then he's also put with the unfaithful. Hmm. I think one of the sillier readings of this is he's like cut in two, and so his sinful nature goes with the unfaithful, and uh, (laughs) and his new nature goes... With the faithful, I think that's uh, that's silly. That's not what the Lord means at all here. Um, he f- himself falls under profound judgment and curse. All right, we've got three kinds of unfaithfulness. The next, I think, comes here in 47. And that slave who knew his master's will but did not get ready or do act as fine according to his will. So kind of that template of one who um, is a hearer only a hearer, but not a doer. But again, I think specific to the pastoral ministry servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, um, A yeah, that's like flogging and uh, many blows. So, um, a flogging with many blows. That's the second. And then, the, and the, so to a lesser degree, I mean, he survives, he lives, he's not put with the unfaithful. So, by way of contrast, this would be um, a servant who is pretty unfaithful in his service but not such that he, rem- that he is sent with the unfaithful, not such that he is cut in two. So this one would be one saved, just saved through great pain, saved um, having to endure a great punishment. Okay, and then 48, but the one who did not know, this is the third kind of unfaithfulness, the one who did not know, And did what deserved a beating. So here's one who doesn't really know the master's will. He's by and large ignorant of it. But he still did what deserved a beating. Because obviously if he doesn't know, he's not going to be able to get ready or act in according to the will. So he's largely ignorant. But ignorance isn't wholly exculpatory. So he will receive a light beating. Uh, stripes few blows so um, like lashes with a whip then you sort of have this uh, generalized statement everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more all right, so, yeah, I mean, I, Peter, back to Peter's question, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And it seems to be a yes, but definitely more directed toward those who are given, set by the Lord over fellow slaves to care for them and to give them the right portion, the right portion of food. Now, what other biblical verses, we, when we re- read difficult scripture passages, we want to let the scriptures interpret the scriptures, what other passages might we look to to explain this? I think very simply, and if you like a blunt answer, James says in chapter 3, verse 1, let not my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, for you will face a greater judgment or a stricter judgment. And then if you were looking for another text where our Lord says, so again, in this case where he's talking, you know, of these, of these three, um, I mean, there's one, <laughs> let's hold out for hope here. There's, there's one guy who gets no beatings. He does his job faithfully. You know, I think, I think a, a parallel to this, not with the pastoral office per se, but a parable to this, a parallel to this would be, remember the, remember the four types of soil? There's one good soil. So likewise there's one good servant here. Um in the soils there's one who goes to hell. Um just right off the bat he never gets he never has faith and there's one here that goes to hell and there's no choice. So I think there's some kind of parallels there even though not identical. Um the point being then you've got one guy who is a faithful servant and he's commended and set above all the lord's possessions. You've got um three other guys Uh, who are unfaithful in manner of degree, one so much so that he's entirely outside of the kingdom, and two others who remain in the kingdom, one with uh, greater sufferings and one with lesser sufferings. Now, if you were looking for a parallel passage, you could go to 1 Corinthians, um, I think it's three, yeah, it is three, where um, Paul talks about Uh, He's talking about the labors. I mean, there too, you can see that it's possible to be generalized for Christians, and in a general sense is kind of true. I suppose in a general sense, the way this is true, but pretty darn specific in context to the apostolic and pastoral ministries. And he likens uh, the pastoral office to that of the builder. Only one foundation can be laid, and that is Christ Jesus. Now, if you've got rid of that foundation, sorry, you're out on the day of judgment, on the day of visitation. If you don't have Christ, if you don't have the visitation, or I mean, if you don't have Christ on the day of visitation, you're out. But if you've laid the foundation, which is Christ, then what you build upon it is the second question. And there are those that build with wood, hay, and stubble in 1 Corinthians 3, and those that build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And then their work. Paul says, is tested by fire, purgos. And that's really, by the way, the biblical version of purgatory, okay? It's not a time or a place. It's not billions of years in some weird vestibule of heaven. It's this event of the particular judgment over one's ministry. And whatever is, you know, the thing with building with, um, wood hay and stubble is you can erect a lot really fast, but the biggest problem with it is it's not fireproof. And so, it'll burn all the way down to the foundation. Now, those who retain the foundation, Paul's very clear, will be saved, and yet as those who have passed through fire. So, here they're, you know, in our Lord's parable, they're suffering bodily pain um, here they're suffering the in First Corinthians three. That is, they're suffering the burning up of their life's labor. So not a pleasant prospect there either. But if the foundation, if they have the foundation which is Christ Jesus, they will be saved. So in and then those with who build with uh, gold, silver, and precious stones mean that like slow, painstaking, costly building. But the beauty there is it's fireproof, and so when the fires of judgment come, it stands. And so, these have not only the foundation, but then what they've built with remains also. So, I think you can immediately see the connection between these three texts, James warning that there's a greater judgment, a greater severity of judgment for the pastoral office and those who assume its functions. Uh, Paul expressing this in terms of those who may be saved and yet through the loss of their life 's work, and then Jesus speaking here about those who may be saved and yet as if receiving severe beatings, which I, you know again, whether it 's physical or spiritual, is like who cares? I mean, what if I found out as a pastor that I was wrong about everything and it misled people left and right? I mean that that's precisely the kind of beating that would be terrible to receive and one that one wants to avoid at all costs. How does how does one in the pastoral office avoid such a fate? Well, to know the will and to do the will, to stay awake, to faithfully care, to faithfully distribute the, the food of the master a portion to the fellow servants, and to not uh, exhibit those tendencies where you say, "My master is delayed and come. he's not going to be here at all. I'm in this for me," and uh I can beat and abuse who I want to beat and abuse. I can eat, drink, and be merry, and that's called the pastoral ministry. It's not going to go well for you. Okay, and then what's true for the pastoral office, maybe acutely, is true in a broader and general sense for all Christians. I mean, the sense that there is a rendering of uh, judgment, um, while simultaneously there is no ultimate condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, I've just done a lot of talking, and maybe there's some questions floating around, so I'll pause.
1: Yeah, just one second. Run the
0: microphone.
2: Yeah, Pastor, going back to the uh, the timing of this, uh, my personal experience over the years, I've run into people who are just wanting to emphatically say, be ready, the time is near, uh, you know, uh, it seems like they're arrogantly aware. They know something more than I do. It seems on a timing thing. If, if, if they would say uh, the words like, you know, wait, be watching, be awake, I could understand that. So my question is this. Uh, what should I say to them when they appear to be more knowledgeable? Because Jesus says, no one knows the time. I almost want to say that to them, you know. Uh, how do you know the time? Because no one, even Jesus himself didn't know the time he said. So it it bothers me, and I I, I don't like that about myself, but when I hear that or I see signs and so forth, it seems like there's a little different twist. Uh, Anyway.
0: Yeah, I can very much sympathize with your sentiment. I mean, it's true, and what we want to hold on to Every faithful generation within the history of Christendom lives as though it is in the end times, and we're waiting for Christ to return. And that's precisely because we are in the end times, every generation, and we are waiting for Christ to return. That's, uh, we get that, if, if from nowhere else, the first chapter of Hebrews, now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we're all in the last days, and that part's, well well taken. But you're right, Barry, you get these these folks that are like, no, no, I, you know, I've read this secret thing, or my pastor has given me this secret wisdom. And, you know, it's, it's happening right now. Um, it's happening tomorrow, it's happening in the next year, we've entered some critical point in the chronological timeline of revelation, you know, and all of that, I think, is to be met with mostly a large rolling of the eyes uh you can and, and again a lot of it is also based on a kind of um uh american centric view of the of the world i'm not sure that everywhere in the world is under quite the duress and sense of foreboding and end times that uh, america is in <laughs> and then you might, uh, you might also think about some other centuries because um, you could think of the Black Death, the Black Plague, and um, how many were wiped out during that period. You can think even during the times of the World Wars and uh, how many millions of lives lost. And um, you, can, you can look at other eras in history, which are better candidates, frankly, on paper uh, for, nope, this is it. It's not going to get any worse than this okay so yeah i think a lot of the end times mania that american christians have had and that's been around since their inception here especially in the states it's kind of end times mania revivalistic all passion and drama and um you know again it's meant to be it's meant to be met with a big eye roll in my estimation it's kind of an ignorance of the global situation ignorance of history And ultimately an ignorance of that theologist says, yeah, we should all be urgent and stay awake and be ready for the Lord. There's no guarantee. There's no more guarantees coming this century than that. He was coming last century. He's coming next century. We just wait on him. Does that help?
2: Well, do you suggest? Yeah. I basically, I roll quietly and I, I I don't get into any uh, discussion and, but is there anything, I mean, I heard you say at the end, yes, I agree that we should all be awake, but no one knows when the time will come because he'll come like a thief in the night and just stop it at that. <laughs> is that the way to respond to it? Or Sounds
0: good to me. Yeah, probably just depends on how you want to spend your morning. You know, if you,
2: it's a good point. It it could, yeah. Okay. These people are usually uh, very charismatic and very, uh, you know, aggressive. And they're Christian, though, you know. So
0: anyway. Yeah. Yeah. They're usually very sure about themselves. And unfortunately, I found that, I mean, generally speaking, this just doesn't last. Uh, People get all worked up. I mean, we've had people come visit us at the church here and they're all worked up or they'll call and talk my ear off. You know, they'll leave 17 messages because I know it's nonsense and they're going to leave. They leave 17 messages. Finally, I just acquiesce. Fine. I'll talk to you. And like an hour later, they haven't even taken a breath. They're wrong in more ways than I can count this. uh, But this kind of spirituality just doesn't last. That's the other thing. Nobody's tracking these people. They all flame out and burn out real fast. It's a kind of spiritual illness it's you can sympathize with it um, because it, it it's well intentioned on the part of the one who's experiencing it but again it when it, when you just start to see these characteristics i think you can just sort of dismiss it and you know if, if anything if you have opportunity to assert kind of the still calm confidence um that we have as historic Christians, uh, it's a good thing to do for them, but I don't know it'll do much good. Thank you.
1: Oh, uh, can I uh, say something about the, uh, the son of man and, uh, you must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour. You do not expect. I was interested in the connection to, um, the, when the word of the Lord came to me in Ezekiel, uh, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Uh, and the connection there, maybe Jesus is has that in mind, uh, this, where, where, where the Lord says to Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman. And then he goes on to say that you will, um, as far as the pastoral office, that you will warn the wicked from his wicked way. And if you, um, you don't warn him, then uh he shall die for his iniquity but you will have delivered your soul um i think i'm misquoting that his blood will i will i will require at your hand i thought is is jesus have that in mind when he's using the son of man to refer to himself
0: i yeah, i mean, sure yeah i would i would make the he's the son of man all over the place but I really do like your connection with the idea of watching, especially um, when we look at like verse 37 and the actual language there for awake is like awake for the watch, the watching through the night hours. I think that that very, I I love your point. If that's you, Chris, I'm not sure I could, uh, if I got that right. But yeah, that's, I think that's a fantastic connection to have that in the background here. And I think, you know, I I mean, just to, I don't think any, I don't think any pastor does his job perfectly. Um, I do think that St. Paul conducts his, his ministry in such a way that he has a clear conscience about it. But he says also that I'm not thereby exonerated just because my conscience is clear, just because I think I've done all right. I don't know of anything of which I need to repent or change. I mean, again, I think St. Paul there would be jumped all over by modern Lutherans for self-righteousness, but that's just not. He's just being honest. He's conducted himself in a certain way. He's repented and made amends where he needs to. He's moved along in good faith and good conscience, even then he submits himself to the Lord and says, yeah, but there's still one who's greater than I who's going to judge and weigh these things, and he'll do what's right. And, you know, that ultimately is the, the pastor's trust is, you know, we're all conducting ourselves, well, I shouldn't say we all, It's hard to speak about. I think faithful pastors conduct themselves in a way they try to walk in a clean conscience. They try to do what's right. Where they failed, they repent to the Lord and are forgiven and they try to do better. They're living the Christian life just in the pastoral office. And at the end, no matter what you think of your ministry, whether you think there's some good or some bad or whatever, you have to hand it over to the Lord as the one who finally renders judgment on that. And you have to be okay with that. And I think, I mean, I think that that is sort of the pastor's trust is it's like, well, I trust the Lord more than I trust myself. So he's going to do what's right. And he's going to, wherever the chips fall, may he be merciful where, where he can be merciful and may he, uh, you know, correct decisively as, as he sees fit. And I'm game for that because ultimately I want nothing more than to be conformed into the image of the Son. And insofar as I served as a pastor, I want my pastor to be conformed into the image of that of the good pastor, so the good shepherd. So yeah, the, I, but those um those warnings in Ezekiel and the warnings here, I mean, they're no joke and they're no messing around. I sometimes you know think that uh, well, I know the seminarians get this in our in our synod, but I sometimes think that this would a lot of a lot of um. Folks that go into the pastoral office don't see it like this, and they think it's like one more credential or one more achievement or maybe something I can do that's going to be pretty, pretty easy. I can yeah. sing, sing Jesus Loves Me and hold some old ladies' hands and preach the same sermon over and over, and everything's going to go well. And it's like, yeah, well, I doubt it, but maybe it will until your judgment, and then it won't <laughs> because you weren't exactly faithful in your task. Uh, if it all went swimmingly. Any other, uh, thank you for that, Chris. I love that you drew out uh, Ezekiel there. I think that's exactly right. Any other uh, questions, comments? uh,
2: Yeah, in in the, uh, considering the end times, I always like what Martin Luther said. He said, if, if um, I knew that the end of the world was coming tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today. I think that that's basically says we really don't know when the end will be, but we need to get along with our lives and 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 do what is necessary and just be awake and uh, be aware and ready.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think thank you for that sentiment, Radford. Um... Of course, you know, so it's questionable if Luther actually said that, but let's assume he did. Um, Yeah, the point would be, hey, get on about your vocation, you know, get on about what is the and we're going to get to this. um, We're going to get to this with the fig tree parable coming up. And that's just the idea that when judgment comes, may the Lord find us doing what he's been given us to do. And so, you know, that's that's taking care of the earth. That's taking care of our vocations as uh, husbands, fathers, maybe children, um, employers, employees, etc. Let's let's be about the business the Lord has given us and kind of walk in that that good faith, that uh, clean conscience in Christ Jesus, that clean conscience that comes from walking in the light, which is walking in the truth of repentance and the cleansing of Christ's blood and the setting about to not walk in the way of sin, that's, um, you know, that's the path for us. And we just commend it into the Lord's hands, knowing the Lord's better than we are, more gracious than we are, more good than we are, more righteous than we are. Um, I mean, I, I frankly look forward to it. Look forward to it. Okay, well, I'm seeing we're, uh, we've got about a minute left. So if we, um, if we just let that section be wrapped up, then uh, what we'll do next week is, so the next parable proper happens in 13.6, and that's the parable of the fig tree. So maybe what we'll do for next week is just kind of skim through the material leading up to 13.6, not do a detailed job there, and then slow way down for 13.6. And I think chapter 13 you're going to like. This little nexus of Jesus' teachings taps into what is sometimes called the problem of suffering, sometimes uh, has an entry point by way of theodicy or so-called defense of God. But I think of Jesus' own teachings and the problem of suffering, why some, not others, that whole nexus of questions, uh, really his treatment of that in Luke 13 is about the closest we have to a textbook on it. So I look forward to studying all of that with you uh, starting next week. All right, let's uh, close with the Lord's Prayer.